You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Eric O'Neill, who's a cybersecurity expert and former FBI counterterrorism counterintelligence operative. He is the founder of the Georgetown Group, the premier investigative and security service firm. He serves as a national security strategist for Carbon Black and is the general counsel for Global Communities, an international charity. He lectures internationally about espionage and national security, cybersecurity, hacking and fraud, and corporate diligence and defense, and has appeared as a national security expert on CNN and Fox. He's the author of the new book, Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy, which if you're listening to this the day the podcast goes up, the book came out today. So welcome back, Eric, because you've done a podcast with us before, and thank you for joining us again here at SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. It is great to be back on SpyCast. So one of the things that actually, when we first got notice from the publisher that this book was coming out and first got the galleys, I was wondering what the book was about. I'm like, what is this next book about? Because I had always assumed that you'd already written the book about <laughs> your investigation and chasing down hands. Like just, it was almost the assumption that the book had been out for a while and somehow I had read it and forgotten that I'd read it. So I, and actually several other people in the office were like, what's that book about? I'm like, oh, this is, this is Eric talking about catching hands. And they're like, he's writing that one again. It's just, the <laughs> assumption was because of course right. the movie came out more than a decade ago and you've been talking about this forever that this book existed already. So why now? So let me, uh, yes, let me give you the strange, yeah. the strange twisting tale of why the book came out after the movie. I never wanted to make a movie. I never had a plan to make a movie. It just sort of happened. What I wanted to do was write a book. But it was 2001 when I started this. It was right after the Hanson arrest, sometime after that. I left the FBI, and I sought permission to write my story. By the time I finally got permission from the FBI, 
to declassify the one part of the story that was never told, that I worked undercover to catch Hansen, that that is where we got our smoking gun, that that's where we won the case, there were already six books that were in publication. So I felt defeated going to different agents and publishing houses in New York City and hearing each of them say, we love your story, it's a story we want, but we already have an author, and would you maybe write a chapter for them? Right. And I said no, and I, I felt very unhappy about that. I, I wanted to tell my story, I wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. My brother was an actor in Hollywood, and he said you know, on one late evening, and I actually tell this story at the end of Grey Day, he said, why don't we just make a movie? And I thought, eh, that'll never happen. It, you know, people aren't going to make a movie out of this. And, but maybe it'll get my brother some exposure in Hollywood. So David went out and talked to some people. I, I spoke to Adam Mazur and Bill Rotko, who ended up writing the story for Breach in the first few screenplays, and told my story after getting the permission from the FBI. Billy Ray is the director and, uh, and writer of what eventually became the screenplay for Breach. He, he came on board, and it was a long, long, nebulous tale to finally get a movie made. Uh, but I always wanted to write a book. Mm. Now, when the movie came out, it was 2007, so I was in my late 20s. I still had the idea of writing a book, and it only took me until I was 46 <laughs> to get around to do it. But the reason for that is leaving the FBI, becoming an attorney, becoming a national security attorney, and then starting a, a security company, joining Carbon Black, a cybersecurity company. I became an expert in security and cybersecurity. I developed an expertise beyond the work that I was doing as right. a ghost for the FBI. And suddenly I had much more to say than just the story about the room, uh, in the room catching Robert Hansen. So, well, it's a dramatic different yeah. perspective that you have now, right? And not only do you have a decade and a half to look back and kind of understand things from some distance, you probably didn't right away. But like you said, you, you understand a little bit more about not only the impact of what Hansen did, because it wasn't always obvious from the beginning, but also your your career, like you said, your 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 experiences since then have given you a better perspective on how to tackle this issue. Exactly. Gray Day is not just the story of how we caught Hansen. I, I use a little bit of a trick. So it is that narrative story told from my perspective and all of the hell I went through in that room and trying to keep my marriage together and what undercover operations do to you outside of that operation. But it's also a cautionary tale about how the United States is losing the cybersecurity battle and what we need to do to win. And the reason that those two themes marry up so well is all of the conversations that I was having with Hansen within that room 9930 in FBI headquarters where my covert job was to catch him, but our overt job was to develop cybersecurity for the FBI. All of those conversations were about cybersecurity what we called information security or infosec back then, and what we would have to do in order to protect data, and why spies, especially Russian spies, were able to so nimbly steal our information because we weren't protecting it correctly. So those conversations with Hansen created the basis for my entire theories of cybersecurity and cyber defense. Right, because as bad as Hansen was when it comes down to the spying that he did, he wasn't an idiot. He certainly understood the vulnerabilities in American cybersecurity. He certainly understood how far behind we had gotten. You know, he was the predominant expert of the FBI in infosec and information security, which made him so dangerous because 
you got the cream of the crop, the guy who knows more than everything is the guy who's spying for the Soviets. Certainly. So Hansen wasn't just the worst spy in U.S. history, arguably, and certainly the worst spy in the FBI's history. He was the legendary gray suit that everyone who came out of the FBI Academy knew that we were going to be hunting for, no matter where you were in the FBI. This mole that we knew was somewhere in the intelligence community, just but just for 22-some years couldn't find. He was a, a hacker. He understood how to penetrate computer systems at a time when we weren't building computer systems to defend. And so he was able to exploit networks and security systems within the FBI and also get on task forces with other agencies and steal from them. And I think, you know, one, one funny uh, story that I like to tell when I'm in, on stage and I, I tell it in grade A was he was one of the first spies to drop data to the Russians. And I like to imagine some old KGB intelligence officer getting a floppy disk and wondering what to do with it. Right. And then finally figuring out, oh, I got to stick this in a computer and realizing it's encrypted. Because in some of their letters back to him, they asked, what do I do with this? There's, you know, he's, he assumed they would understand how to break encryption. So he had to tell them how to, how to open the, that data up. I bet that pissed him off. <laughs> <laughs> I think it made, uh, you know, the KGB had to think of him. They didn't know who he was, which is one of the ways that he protected himself. And he was very careful to not, never let them know his identity, which is, if you're a spy, that's the perfect way to clean yourself and to keep yourself right. safe. Uh, you know, the, the KGB, on the other hand, they put up with all his nonsense and his foibles and the way that he controlled the entire operation because he was literally the goose laying the golden age eggs. He gave them some of the most damaging intelligence against the United States that has ever been handed over to a foreign intelligence service. So they weren't going to mess with that. Let, let's talk about, before we get to the Hanson case specifically, let's talk about your path to the FBI because a lot of people think, you know, whether they're watching TV shows or just from basic pop culture, the idea of the FBI is you're, you're, you're Mulder and Scully, you're carrying a gun, <laughs> right. you're the FBI agent arresting people. But there's a lot of different jobs at FBI, and yes. certainly a lot that don't carry guns around, whether they're intelligence analysts or they're behavioral BAU guys or they're people who are doing forensic stuff. And then there are surveillance specialists, yes. which is what you did, the ghosts. The ghosts. So was that something that you'd always wanted to do? Was it a what you thought is a stepping stone to become an agent? What got you into that in the first place? So like everyone in 1996... Uh, who was applying to the FBI, no one knew that the ghosts existed because back then they were still classified. To back up, I, I hadn't actually dreamed growing up of applying to the FBI. In, in fact, what I wanted to do out of high school is go into the Naval Academy. And so I worked very hard in my last number of years at high school to bring my grades up to be competitive. I didn't get directly into the Academy. Coming from Maryland, that's a pretty tough thing to do. I got into the academy one year deferred. So the idea was go to a prep school and then you can start after a year at the academy. I decided that what I'd do instead of going to a prep school that just teaches you sort of to march and step and get ready for the military aspect, I would go to an engineering school to get a, a full year of engineering under my belt and then go into the academy uh, with the idea that I was going to go study engineering and I would uh, have, an, have a heads up on all of my other classmates. It would be an easier first year for me. And so I chose Auburn University. And I went to uh, Auburn University in their prestigious engineering program in aerospace engineering with the idea that I would do 
the Naval Academy, then I would fly, and then I would go to NASA and be an astronaut, which is all I ever wanted to do my entire life. Love astronauts, still am fascinated by it. Um, if I could go back in time and, and try my life out again, maybe I would shoot for the stars <laughs> one more time. But after a year of Auburn and, you know, very young, I decided engineering wasn't for me. Aerospace wasn't for me. Uh, I really liked Auburn and wasn't ready to leave and go to the Naval Academy. I broke my parents' heart. My <laughs> father is a Navy grad. You know, my grandfather uh, was a tin can sailor. He was a gunnery officer on a um, destroyer. My father a submariner. I have a big Navy family. And suddenly I'm saying, nah, I'm not going to do that. And I decided that when I graduated Auburn, I still wanted to serve. I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to do something meaningful, but also something cool. And that, uh, that's the God honest truth. And so graduating Auburn, I took a job at a consulting firm because what do you do? It's 1995 and that's what everyone was doing in 95. Joining a consulting firm and then figuring out what a consultant actually was. Right. And I found that that wasn't what I was ready to do uh, you know, at 22 years old, is sit behind a desk and, and deal with Excel spreadsheets. So I applied. I literally picked up the phone book and I found addresses for the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, the NSA, the Secret Service, and every other agency that did something unique and exciting and would give me skills that I could never get anywhere else. And I heard back from a number of them. Now, back then, the way you applied was you sent a index card with your name and address to them and they sent you back this massive folder with you know a 100-page application. And it was this miserable exercise of having to feed paper into these things that we used to have called typewriters and try to hit the keys right in those little boxes and get them right. Uh, and it was very frustrating if you got them wrong because what you, what you learned to do quickly is copy the whole packet. So when you got it wrong, you could start over. I heard back from the FBI, the DEA, the Secret Service very quickly. Never heard back from the CIA, their loss, um, or the NSA. And I decided that whoever gave me a, day, a training date first I would go with. And it was the FBI by one day over the DEA. <laughs> and I had gone through all of the preliminary um, psychological evaluations, um, you know, and so that DIA recruiter was really angry. Now, the reason that I went into the SSG, the Special Surveillance Group, as an uh, investigative specialist and not a special agent is I was too young. Hmm. And uh, back when I applied, you had to be a minimum of 25 years of age to be a special agent. But what happens in the FBI is they evaluate your application. And they came back to me and said, you're too young to be a special agent, but would you consider this program? We, we select the select few, and we think you would be great for it. And that was the ghosts. And that is how I got in. It, it sounded amazing. And the skills that I learned uh, in the training and in the years that I worked the streets as a ghost, have, have, I've kept and used for the entire rest of my life. We put them to work here at the museum when we do programs with you from time to time about surveillance. So if you're local and in the area, and uh, once we start doing stuff again in the fall, i got to check out the surveillance workshops with Eric. Let's talk a little bit about the ghosts, because I think people may have heard of them a little bit but don't know a whole lot about it. Um, as you mentioned in the book, these were skills learned from MI5 but kind of taken to the extreme mm -hmm. by the FBI. You tell a great story about David Sheldon Boone, which is – Talk about Murphy's Law and about backups and redundancy and everything else. I think that's a really great story. If you want to kind of link those two together and tell a little bit about what the ghosts do, 
And I, I know you want to leave that for the book, perhaps. Oh, or, no, I'm happy to. Tell okay, that great. Then that story is fantastic because it's one of those things where it demonstrates how you have to be able to think on your feet and how you have to be able to kind of have the skills, but also the natural wherewithal to be able to yeah. pull stuff out of your ass when necessary. So let me, let me set the stage a little bit. Uh, the good news is that for the first time in my life, I feel 100% comfortable about talking about the work I did in the SSG, which virtually every single thing that I did was classified uh, top secret and above. So most, pretty much all of it was SCI, Special Compartmentalized Intelligence. But because I wrote a book and because the book had to go to pre-publication review and nobody could read it until the FBI did and then gave it the thumbs up, everything that's in there I could talk about. So I feel very comfortable yes. right now, Vince. <laughs> For the first time, I feel like guys in black suits aren't going to kick the door in and drag me out halfway through the interview. David Sheldon Boone, uh, the thing about being a ghost, about being a surveillance surveillance operative is that you learn to see the world in a different way. You become hyper aware of everything around you. You know how close anyone is to you. I like to say that the ghosts know how to disappear. And the reason is, is because we know that moment that no one in the room is actually looking at you and you take a step and then another step and suddenly you're gone and everybody wonders how the heck did he do that? David Sheldon Boone was the first spy I ever spoke to. In fact, he was the only spy I spoke to until I was locked in a room with Robert Hansen. He was a guy who had sold out uh, to the East Germans, uh, to, to the Russians and then the East Germans way back during the Cold War, and had left the U.S. and settled in East Germany with a uh, German wife. And so we never had an opportunity to catch him. So the FBI created a false flag operation. They had someone who pretended they were a Russian call him and say, we'd like you to come back to the U.S. and start spying for us again. And he did. That's sort of a very long story short, so I can get to my part in it. Yes. My job, my team's job, a team of ghosts, our sole job was to pick him up at the airport. That, that means identify him when he gets off the plane and then take him to his hotel so he could be arrested. The idea is we get him to an isolated area where the arrest, uh, we can control the entire arrest. We don't want to do these things in the middle of a crowded terminal at the airport. And Murphy's Law is simply that Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. So you better plan for it. So, and we do, redundancy upon redundancy. We had some of the best surveillance operatives in the entire world sitting there right at the gate watching, him to, watching for him to come off that plane. And somehow they missed him. We had people down in baggage claim, missed him there. We had people that were down, down where um, you come down the escalators to ground transportation, missed him there. Everyone in the airport missed him somehow. And... Of course, I've got an earpiece in my ear. We're all wired up constantly in communications with these ridiculously large uh, walkie-talkie devices that are encrypted. So they're super big and run hot. And you usually shove them down your pants, so you end up very unhappy by the end of the day. And listening to the rest of the team spin, when we say spin, that means that you're running around looking for the spy and getting more and more agitated because you can't find them. And out of nowhere, as I'm listening to this, I hear my earpiece was always in my right ear. I hear on my left ear, thank God he was on that side, this quiet voice with this very slight European twinge to it, which happens when you live in Europe too long. Ask me where the Hertz Gold bus stop is. I was the last guy, the free safety, the final piece of this surveillance operation. I don't know what I did to piss off my team leader, but I was all the way out of ground transportation, standing 
near the bus stops where we figured the spy wasn't going to go, but you always plan for everything. And I turn and look, and there he is, a little older, dressed differently than we thought. He had put on a jacket or you know, changed in a way that they missed him coming off the plane, but with the same briefcase that we knew that he had. And I looked at him and I said, you just sort of had to roll with it, not show any expression on your face, go with what's happening in the situation. And I said, why, yes, I know where it is. In fact, I'm going there too, so why don't we go together? Had a small conversation on the way there. I put him on the bus. He sat down in the front. I went all the way to the back, let my team know that we were on that bus, met them there, followed him to his car. You know, he didn't see me following him, but I watched to see what car he got into, read out the license plate to my team and the make and model. They picked him up. Uh, and I was done for the day because I was burned. I couldn't right, be yeah, seen by him again. Yeah, right. All of a sudden pop up later on. Yeah. So I got to go home early. <laughs> but that's how we caught our spy that day. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just it's blind luck that he decided to pick you. Yes. But at the same time, if you had turned and said, holy shit, you're the guy we're looking for, that would have been really problematic. <laughs> that would have really thrown, yes. yeah, that would destroy the operation. Yes. Now, I like to think that uh, eventually I would swivel my head and said, oh, look, there he is. Yeah. But serendipity sometimes helps you out with those moments. <laughs> well, let me, let me shift to the Hanson case because we really want to spend some time talking about that because um, it's interesting to me why you were chosen for this because um, you're almost chosen because you hadn't done anything. <laughs> I mean, it's one of these things like how did, how did you get the luck of going after the worst spy in history? It's because you weren't known to anyone. You basically just started at the bureau. Right. Well, I had actually been in the bureau for uh, over four years at that point. So and running, uh, running terrorists and spies throughout this, the streets of D.C., known or suspected spies, intelligence officers who were working out of uh, various diplomacies. And the idea about being a ghost, though, you know, one of the reasons we, we got the name Ghosts is we weren't known to the broader FBI. We didn't hang out at headquarters or Washington field office. We worked out of black sites. We were kept separate from the counterintelligence agents and counterterrorism agents we worked for and with. Part of the reason is when an agent went bad, we would be the ones who would right. investigate them, right? So it, it's not good if you know, they turn around and see you following them down the street and uh, they know your name. They say, hey, what are you doing? And, and then they realize you're following them and they realize their career is over. So we were kept separate. The other thing that contributed was that I had gotten married? I had gotten engaged and then married to a German, and I hadn't filled out the correct form before proposing to her. So apparently, in the FBI, to um, avoid embarrassments, you know, FBI people with um, security clearances marrying into, say, the mob or marrying a known uh, target, you need to have that person backgrounded before you propose. No one told me. It wasn't in the employee handbook. Or if it was, I skimmed it. And if didn't the FBI see it. wanted you to have a wife, they would have issued you one. Yes, they would issue pistol. me a, a, yeah. a proper one, probably mm -hmm. a cheerleader who's mm -hmm. nothing like my wife. But uh, I married a, a German, and when I tried to say, she's a German, and they said, she's an East German. I said, there is no East Germany. Didn't you hear of unification? And they laughed and said, not to us. So uh, I was beached. I lost my security clearance, or I had it suspended while they investigated my, my new wife. <laughs> so that meant that for that period of time, I wasn't assigned. I was pulled off my team, and I wasn't assigned to follow this guy, Robert Hansen, who was suddenly something, someone that the FBI was interested in. 
I actually got a chance to talk to Gene McClelland, who was my, who's a special agent, supervisory special agent, still isn't in the Bureau anymore, but still works with the Bureau as a consultant. Great guy uh, in, in working on Gray Day, and he said I could use his name for the book, and he appears in the book about, hey, why the heck, why pick me? I said, I had a good idea, but he actually knew because he was one of the people who, he was the guy who proposed me. He was my supervisor in the ghost team. And he said, for a couple reasons, <clears throat> we couldn't find any agent who was trained in this face-to-face -face investigation who knew how to turn a computer on. So none of our counterintelligence guys <laughs> could sell the idea that you're developing cybersecurity for the FBI. No one could hang with this guy who was a hacker and a computer pro who had fooled us all these years. Uh, you weren't known to him. You have a counterintelligence background, so you at least know enough about the game. And I had developed a database on my own at the FBI to track targets because I was tired of doing it in this, this method where we would throw all the data out in paper and sift through it on a conference table and try to do predictive analysis on this this Russian I.O. has been at this telephone pole the last, um, for the four, la, in the same day in the four last year, in the last four years, let's see if he's going to be there in the next year. A computer can do that in a second. Right. It was taking an afternoon for analysts. The reason I built this is I wanted to go to law school at night and, not ha and get out of my night shifts. But it worked out, and right. this was a way to sell to Hanson. This guy knows computers. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. So one thing also interesting about that was that this wasn't something where you could spend months and years slow playing this investigation. Because there was urgency, right? Because Hansen was about to retire from the FBI. And likely, he would probably retire from spying also. I mean, if you had to catch him, you had to do it pretty fast. There wasn't like, you know, you're going to be undercover for two years getting to know Robert Hansen. Exactly. We, there was a lot of time pressure in this investigation. And this really demonstrates how quickly the FBI can pull together a perfect operation in almost no time. You know, we, we, we hear so much criticism about the bureaucracy of the FBI, but when a field team gets engaged and goes after a target, that target is ultimately doomed because we are so mechanically good at doing what we do. So in, in this case, Hansen had been for 
no better way of saying it, banished to the State Department on a liaison job just because no one really liked him and he had a lot of problems in the FBI. He was a poor manager, a poor operational person. He was an extremely talented analyst, but he had, he had difficulty in his people skills. And while he did have friends in the FBI, he was really mean to subordinates. And he had had an issue with a subordinate where there was a physical altercation. He was challenged by um, a, a woman and felt that he had to throw her to the ground for some reason. And so he was, because you can't get fired from government, it's next to impossible, uh, he was banished. And so in his mind, he was going to spend the next few months, this is December when we started this, this aspect of the operation, and he was going to um, retire in April. He would spend the next few months hanging out at the State Department doing God knows what he did. He, no one actually followed up on him or right. did a review on him or anything. And suddenly, he's asked to come back to headquarters, promoted to executive service, given his dream job, said, you're going to get staff, and we're going to extend you past your retirement if you will take this position. And when he said, why? You're the only one who knows how to protect our computer systems, Bob. Uh, you know, he's a trusted insider, so he's a narcissist, right. so you appeal to that. And he took the job. Now he has to take that job, knowing that this could just be a ruse to bring him back and isolate him so that we can investigate him, because it would be hard to do at the State Department, but, but a lot easier at headquarters. So he's coming into this position, this, this angry person who has, has problems dealing with the personnel, who, who is quite possibly the worst spy in U.S. history, and they're going to throw him in a room and ask me to go in there with him and investigate him and hope that I know enough about computers to talk about that with him, but also have enough other things in common that they had identified that he'll talk to me and maybe I'll learn something that'll help us catch him. He's, he's no idiot. I mean, this is someone, again, that has fooled American counterintelligence for decades at this point. He had to suspect, perhaps, that something was up. And you talk in the book about the, the difference between suspicion and paranoia. Right. And trying to walk that fine line between the two. But this is somebody who saw, he saw the finish line. Like, he, he, he knew that when he retired, he was probably scot-free. Right. And, um, and then all of a sudden, he's got a new guy sitting at the desk who might be someone who is there to trap him. Exactly. So I do talk about that fine line that I like to say razor's edge that you stand on in this world. So it's not just spies. It's spy hunters. It's our, our CIA people who are working overseas doing some of the most dangerous work in the world, in the whole intelligence community. It's those NSA folks who are doing cyber penetrations and just trying not to get seen by the adversary. It's everyone who works in this in this business, you know, from, from the military to, to people who are in law enforcement or even people who are in emergency services. This line between suspicion and paranoia. Being suspicious is a good thing. That's what keeps a spy alive. It means that you're checking your six. It means that you're looking at your surroundings. It means that you're not going to be mugged on that dark street or hit at a crosswalk because you're not paying attention. It means that you're looking for that flaw that lets you know you're not safe as a spy. Paranoia is bad. If you fall into paranoia, then you cut bait. You're the intelligence officer who walks out of the Russian embassy and feels that you've got a team of surveillance on you, so you, you cancel the operation and you go back and live to fight another day. It's uh, the spy who feels that there's an investigator 
looking at him. And so he stops all information, stops all information gathering, stops all spying, goes completely dark and does nothing. So my biggest goal, my biggest task in the beginning of that investigation was keep him in suspicion. That's okay. But every time he starts to move to paranoia, you have to make him feel like this is a real job that you were assigned to him to do a real job, keep him comfortable. Because if we fail, he cuts and runs. And then <laughs> there was an old agent who even told me, it'll be your fault. <laughs> it's like, great, thanks for keeping on the pressure. And it's not like Hanson didn't know that the FBI was looking for him, maybe not him. They knew they were looking for the mole inside the intelligence community. And this had been right. a long running mole hunt going back to when Brian Kelly, and we don't even get too hard on the Brian Kelly story because we've actually done a couple podcasts on it back in the day, mm -hmm. but there was someone else who was identified as the bad guy. And Hanson could use that to his advantage, and he did, trying to push investigation in the direction of Kelly, but not only Kelly, he used CIA information to try to trick you, the FBI, into thinking it was a CIA person, not an FBI person. So he was fully aware that he was being hunted for for years and years and years by that point. So it's not like he was completely ignorant of the fact that they were on to him, or right. at least him being the, the mole in the intelligence community. Now you're a very good historian. That's, that is, you've hit the nail on the head in a way that maybe I haven't even articulated it as well as I could. The fact of the matter is that Hansen could clean and protect himself as long as he had access. And I think that part of the reason that he came back to headquarters and took this job not just because he was flattered, but that it put him back in the chain of access to information so that he could see whether he was still clean. I truly believe uh, from all of the time I spent with him and, and all of the years I've thought thinking about this, this time in that room, that Hanson wanted to make that last big drop. He wanted to go out on a bang. He, did, he knew he was the greatest spy in U.S. history. He knew that, or the worst, the way you want, either way you want to look at it, um, I truly believe that he wanted that last big drop to the Russians uh, to really cement his, his standing, his persona. This, he called himself Ramon Garcia. He, Ramon Garcia was going to be known as, as the worst spy in U.S. history the, or the best. And, uh, and I think he needed to do that. And coming back to headquarters and getting a job where he was going to be sitting in the center of a web of computer data, I, that, that was hard to pass up. Well, and that computer data, as, as you mentioned in the book, access the FBI counterintelligence investigations against suspected Russian spies. I mean, essentially, he had access to a degree to information about spy hunting within the FBI. So he's almost like he was put in charge of finding himself in many respects. I mean, it's not quite that level. And, well, there, there is one story. He actually was at one point, in a sense, put in charge of finding himself. Uh, the, the headquarters folks told the gray suit squad, right? So Hansen was gray day. He was a suspect who could have been the mole gray suit. But the mole we were after was this guy called gray suit or gal. We didn't know, right? We didn't know anything about them. Uh, only that they spied for the Russians for a million years and liked to call themselves Ramon Garcia or B. And at one point, headquarters asked the, uh, the agents to go out and talk to this guy, Robert Hansen, who was known as their best Russian analyst. And so they went out and talked to him and asked him, could you give us a list of uh, people that you think could be Graysuit? And he was happy to do that. 
And apparently the list sent the FBI on dozens and dozens of wild goose chases that pushed them completely mm -hmm. far away from Hansen. Uh, it was just another way of, of, of pushing the investigation away from himself. And he routinely did that whenever he could. Let me ask him about his personality. You have a, you have a psychology degree. You, you kind of were able to get very close and personal, really the only one. He spent lots of time, just you and he, yes. sitting in that room. Um, was he intimidating the first time you met him? What did, what did you kind of perceive that made him tick? Um, and, I, and I love, the, this is a long-winded question, it's kind of all about your impressions of him. I love the hazing, basically, the whole, for lack of a better word, making you still paintings and kind of right. doing almost busy work to prove yourself as you were there. So uh, your initial impressions of him, because... There was a time in which you didn't know he was the guy until you were told later on. You thought he might be a potential suspect of espionage. Right. So going into the case, so if you look at, if you look at the actual story in, in, in the book, Grey Day, versus the movie, one thing that was flipped in the movie is uh, in real life, in the real true story, I went into the investigation knowing that I was part of an investigation looking into this guy, Robert Hansen, for potential espionage against the United States. Nobody told me that, he, that we had suspected he was that big spy. Uh, in fact, I really wasn't told much more than that. The more that you put in my head, uh, the more chance that Hansen could extract it, I could make a mistake or an inadvertent disclosure that that tells him something that I'm not supposed to tell him. So you tell me as little as possible and I go in a lot more clean. And then as I was getting frustrated in the case and feeling like this is a big waste of guy, time, the guy's a jerk. Yeah, you're right, he's a pervert. Um, he's got a lot of problems. He's probably the worst manager I've ever been under in my entire <laughs> life. And actually I can tell you now at 46, he is the worst manager I've ever had been under and I've been under some bad ones. Um, but he, I'm just not finding anything that suggests he's a spy. He goes to church every single day. I mean, he's the most pious person I've met in my life. Uh, yeah, he's a jerk, but he loves his kids and his family. He just doesn't feel like a spy. Mm -hmm. And that's when they say, he's a spy. <laughs> he's not just a spy. He right. might be the spy. And eventually right? when I said, this is a waste of my time, I just don't want to be in this case anymore. It's destroying my family life and, uh, and it's consuming me and I'm, my grades are slipping in law school and can I please just get out? That's when they said, we believe he's the spy. This is the most important case we've ever run. There is no option to leave. You mentioned ruining your family and there's a lot of stuff about your family from the very beginning of this book all the way to the end. And I think... You know, if people have seen Breach, they, they, they allude to that a little bit in the movie. I and mean, there's not the only so much they can do in an hour and a half or however right. long the movie is. But by reading this book, you can see in the end of this question, I want you to talk about how much of a relief it was to finally tell Juliana what you were doing this whole time. But the amount of pressure this must have put on your marriage, because you hadn't been married all that long, um, to be able to not only have to lie to her, but to lie to her about where you were, who you were with, um, what you were doing. Yeah. Um, and then making things even worse is you've got your crazy boss, probably the worst spy in history, talking to your wife and reaching out to her and, and kind of, boy, was that something that probably was a thorn in your side. Yeah, I mean, try to look at it from my wife Juliana's perspective. You marry this guy, you take a chance, um, move, abandon your life, move to the United States in this crappy little English basement apartment, which is all we could afford in Eastern Market. You know he works for the government. 
you kind of figured out he works for the FBI because it's sort of hard. At some point, they, you know, your, your spouse sees your credentials mm-hmm. or your badge. But he'll never tell you what he does for the FBI. And anytime there's any conversation that gets there, it gets shut down. So you just don't bother asking anymore. And then three months into your marriage, the supervisor shows up. You know, Gene McClellan shows up at the house unannounced on a Sunday morning, wakes everybody up. And then suddenly your husband comes back in and says, I got promoted to a computer job so I can make it to law school. And I'm not so stressed out doing all this crazy overnight and, mm-hmm. and away for three days and, and nutty work. And, and you feel to yourself, oh, this will be great. And then everything is 10 times worse. Because one of the reasons that I truly wanted to put so much of that personal personal marriage and and life into the book is to is to explain what undercover operations right. can truly do to a family to show that to to my readers and uh and it's not fair and it's very hard and a lot of people who did what i do uh, what i did a- ended up divorced because of that now i'm very lucky uh i i juliana stuck by me and i will always owe her, owe her for that but to to answer your question i can tell you that the first thing I asked Kate Alleman, who was the special agent who was in charge of making sure I didn't screw up in this case, the first question I asked her when she called me and said, it's done, we just arrested him, was, can I tell Juliana? And she said, yes, just her and your immediate family were still trying to catch the I.O., the mm-hmm. intelligence officer, the Russian intelligence officer who may have gone and picked up the drop that Hansen left. But don't tell anyone else we're keeping this very quiet. And I did. I pulled the car over. We were driving at the time. And right on the, on the side of the road, you know, cars rushing past, past, so, past so fast that the car, our car was rocking. And I told her everything, start to finish. You know, what I did, what, uh, what I had been brought on to do, what that case was, that that boss that I complained about every night for being such a jerk was actually a spy, the worst spy, and we'd caught him, what this was going to mean, and how suddenly I was uncertain about my future. And what I was going to do next. I'm betting her, her response was mixed. So probably a combination of relief that you could actually kind of, she knew exactly what was going on and it wasn't like an affair and it wasn't like, right. but at the same time, like you mother, you know, like for lying to me for this many months and all that, it, it's, that's something that does come across in the book very well is kind of the, the kind of the relationship tension. And you can almost kind of feel in certain circumstances like, Ooh, man, you, I hope there's a lot of flowers in her future because there's a lot oh, that yes. a lot of crap she had to deal with. Yeah, she um, uh, she was the the character in the book, right? The character in my life, the person in my life. That uh, if you're reading the book, if I were reading the book, she's the one I wanted to wanted to make it more than any, anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted her to be okay at the end, right? Well, it was one of the things where, like, you finished reading it and you wanted to walk up to her and be like, "Man, I'm sorry that you had to deal with that shit," but. Um, enough of that because there's a <laughs> you, you do a you do enough job in the book of, of apologizing in print um but there's an uh, hansen also went after another very personal part of your life and that was your religion yes and uh as people may know if they know the story about hansen he was uber religious he, opus dei which is you know i don't want to be any way derogatory about it it's a very conservative part of the Catholic Church, um, where it's, you know, mass every day and taking right. things very literally in many respects. Um, and you had fought for a while to keep not only your personal life, which we just talked about, your marriage, but also kind of your personal beliefs and religion out of this case and out of your professional life, and particularly away from 
Robert Hansen, who was a not only a creepy guy, but the world's worst spy. Uh, but you kind of had to finally succumb to that. That was your opening. Yes. So when I was a ghost on the streets following, chasing terrorists and spies, it was nice because there was, there was an isolation from your target. You could hide behind a camera. You could, you could change disguises. You could spin up a fake tale. If your target saw you, they might see you briefly, or it might be a glance, or they might see you twice in a day, but you look completely different. I was never myself. I had a legend. I had some other person, a persona I created, and that's who I was. That gives you a barrier. With Hanson, I was Eric O'Neill, and I couldn't use the same tricks because I couldn't be anyone other than who I actually am. And when you work undercover, especially a face-to-face -face operation where you're trying to draw information out of the person without them knowing that's what you're doing, we call it, the art is called elicitation. You have to use everything in your bag of tricks. And, uh, and all I had was who I really was because I couldn't lie because maybe he could check. Mm -hmm. So I was trying my best to reserve those most personal parts of myself to myself. And it turns out in this kind of undercover work, you don't get to do that. Right. You literally pour every part of yourself into it, anything you can use. And, and you throw all of those little bits of integrity that you, you were trying to hold on to right under the bus of that investigation. And that's what I had to do. Everything from my personal relationship with my wife to my religion. And my religion, once I started uh, giving him that, that's when he truly started to trust me and see me as someone who maybe no one was ever a peer to Hansen, but maybe more of a protege. And there's, with Hansen, there's this extraordinary paradox between Catholicism and, at the time, Soviet communism, and then later, you know, whatever the hell Russia had in the 1990s. I mean, now, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, whatever that transitive, that transformation taking place was. But it's very interesting if you kind of look at it from a psychological perspective of somebody who was that religious. And it wasn't a ploy. He was that religious. But at the same time, had some very interesting views on sexuality. And at the same time, was spying for kind of the anti-Catholics, the atheist communists. Yes. And then betraying a country that he'd given an oath to multiple times. Like, did you for a second ever figure out how Hansen was able to compartmentalize that or to justify that paradox in his right. head? Well, to, to, start my, to start my answer to that question, I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that he was insane. I know that his defense at one point tried to put that forward, and there was a psychologist who said he's certifiably insane, and I think that's, well, you've been cursing, so bullshit. Yes. Um, you know, he, he wasn't insane. He knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, you could call him evil because he was meticulous in the knowledge of what he was doing. I truly believe that he, as many spies do, compartmentalized sides of himself from himself. It wasn't, he wasn't a Jekyll and Hyde. He didn't switch personas, but he had the ability to be who he needed to be in certain circumstances. So he was this very puritanical, upstanding, religious pillar of society who would pound the table about how communism is going, is going to destroy the world and how we have to fight it. Uh, but on the same time, and of course, he was a, a wonderful father and grandfather and, and at least good husband as far as his wife knew. But on the other side, he was everything that went opposed to that. He spied for the Russians. He gave up some of the most egregious secrets, nuclear secrets, the names of people who he knew would be killed in Russia. Uh, he gave up 
counterintelligence operations that we were running. He blew people's covers to the wind. He wrote these bizarrely um, sexual stories on message boards about his wife and that, that were way on the other side of the Puritan, puritanical right. um, persona that he, he presented as this, this Catholic upstanding pillar of society. Um, and he also, you know, he could be a pretty mean guy. So he, he had those two sides to himself. I, I like to think that the guy grew up on James Bond and desperately wanted to be James Bond. The FBI didn't give that to him, and so he was angry, and he found a way to, to create that for himself. I, I, I'm going to leave. I mean, we can talk about the, the Palm Pilot all we want to or even Breach all we want to, but again, you've done a podcast before. <laughs> I, 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 I tell our viewers, our viewers, no one's watching us, thank God, our listeners to go back. And check out the interview that you did, I think it was with Peter, probably back in like 2007. Yeah, it was a long time ago. A long ago. time ago. But that you do talk a lot about not only the movie, but also kind of the, the climax of the movie, which is kind of grabbing that palm Getting pilot. Getting that palm pilot, right. Yeah, so we, we'll leave that for them. So we, I want to actually take a, a little bit of time that we have left to kind of get into some questions I've always had uh-huh. about your relationship with him. Um, as the listeners know, I mentioned this when I talked to Ursula Wilder. I, I wrote letters to everybody when I first started this job. I wrote a letter to Hanson, I wrote a to Anna Montez, Alter Games, to all the spies who were in prison. And Ames was the only one that wrote me back. And mm-hmm. Ames did write me back. Um, so I wonder for you, for somebody that knew, ha- have you communicated at all with Bob Hanson since he was sent to prison? Yeah, there's a reason that Hanson may not have written you back. You probably didn't get your letter. Probably not. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it's next to impossible yeah. to get in touch with him. So my the last chapter of Grey Day, I was desperate to make that a conversation with Hanson. Me and my boss in another small room, this time his jail cell, talking about why he did it. That's the question I wanted to ask him. And I, I tried channels through the FBI. I called his attorney and I talked to Plato Kacharis mm-hmm. and I asked him and, and he laughed at me. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the only avenue I didn't try is through his family because I have been very respectful of the fact that they probably don't like me very much right. for putting dad in jail. So uh, I, I haven't done that. But I do want to sit down and talk to him. I think I, I need that for myself, that, that last bit of closure, that catharsis that I need. But I, but I do want to ask him how he did it. So no, I haven't had that opportunity, but I'm still trying. Well, I mean, people may not know the conditions that he's in are, are about as bad as it gets. I mean, it's... 23 hours of the day, he's in solitary confinement, essentially, and he gets one hour to kind of walk around. Um, and, and that's, that's going to be for the rest of his life. This is not, there's no parole. Uh, because the, actually the, the charge he had been convicted of actually could have carried a death penalty sentence. Yes, he has multiple life sentences, each without the opportunity for parole by plea agreement. So even if he got out of one of them, he has a couple others right. that will keep him there. I've also heard, um, I haven't been to Supermax, but I've, I've heard the tale tell, told from many. It, it was desi- designed in a very insidious way. It's where the worst of the worst are. You, one, it's in Florence, Colorado. From what I hear is it's a beautiful, breathtaking vista as you walk to the Supermax Penitentiary. And you see the beautiful snow-capped mountains under the blue sky and just roll waves of green around you. And it's the last sight you see before you never see anything again. Right. And you're, you're, you spend 23 hours a day in that room. And when you go into the courtyard, which you walk through cages, you don't even get escorted or talk to a person. They open and doors open and suddenly you're in a courtyard. You can look up and only see the sky. 
but you know that if you could just see a few degrees down, you could see those mountains again. And that supposedly is one of the, the, the biggest psychological right. punishments that, that affect people that are in there. Let me ask you this final question because I, I want you to kind of extrapolate a little bit from what you know now about an expert in cyber, about what you know about Robert Hansen's background. It's almost a miracle that Hansen wasn't operating today. Because with the technology of today and the ability to send information, the ability to download information on a jump drives and not floppy disks mm-hmm. and everything else, he would be unstoppable. You would think it would be almost impossible to catch someone like him with the knowledge that he had and with the abilities that he had as far as kind of a cyber perspective to cover his own tracks and just erase kind of the digital forensics behind any kind of hacking mm-hmm. that he did. And then, of course, the ability to pass information to an adversary wouldn't necessarily have to be some kind of trash bag full of documents under a, right. a bridge in Foxstone Park. Like That, to me, says we caught him at just the right time. Now, I know he's going to retire anyway, but this is why we're extrapolating and we're, yes. we're counterfactualing and we're waxing philosophic. Well, the idea is that that was right before this transformation point to where things became really digital and very, very difficult to catch someone as brilliant as he is. Yeah, the Hansons of today, and they are there, the trusted insiders of today don't have to grab paper and stuff them down their pants, don't have to quietly, you know, sweating, copy information onto a floppy disk when it takes a second on a thumb drive. Uh, you know, the, the attackers of today, the trusted insiders of today are just uploading information to WikiLeaks. They are um, sending information over secure servers directly to their adversary. But what's happening more often isn't the trusted insider because there's less of a reason for a foreign intelligence service to recruit a trust insider when they can attack directly and create a virtual trust insider. And that's why you see the majority of breaches that happen today are caused by a spear phishing email. Right. You click on a link, you open an attachment you shouldn't, malware is installed on your computer system, it then spreads to the network, and information is captured and sent back to the attacker through a secure server that's created. So now we have, we have our Russian intelligence officers don't have to come here and go through these elaborate maneuvers to set up a mole somewhere because they're just hacking and attacking a person uh, through an electronic means to turn them into a virtual trust insider. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. Right. The spies are always going to be there because like Hansen said in Hansen's Law, the spy is always in the worst possible place. They always will be in that place where they have access to the secrets that they can sell to do the most damage and make the most money. And so we, I, I will guarantee you that in business and also in government agencies, there are still trusted insiders. Maybe not as bad as Hansen, but they're doing their damage. Well, I think of you know Operation Ghost Stories, which you mentioned in the book, but we're, you know, it's the famous Russian 10, Anna Chapman and crew. Yes. Um, they... The FBI was surveilling them for a good decade before they wrapped them up. But the reason they decided to act was that one of them was getting very close, like two steps away from the Hillary Clinton office. Yes, exactly. Talk about, right, getting to some very dangerous place. And they had spent a good decade kind of maneuvering and worming their way in. But that time had paid off. Now, arguably, when they got round up, the FSB and GRU found another way to get into exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> exactly. into the Hillary campaign. Uh, but there were, there are still illegals on the ground. There's still people doing it the old-fashioned way, because 
sometimes you can get information that you're not going to get off of email. Right. And remember know. that those illegals were using new ways of sending information right. to the Russian handler. So Anna Chapman, you brought her up. She would sit in a coffee house and with her laptop open, like, I don't know, dozens and dozens of people every day. And I still wonder what they do. It's just sitting there all day. But apparently people do that. Working on their novels. And working on their novels, right. Working on their books. Yeah. So there she was, and she would clandestinely pair her laptop. And I say clandestinely. Unless you were looking for it, you wouldn't know what was happening. Just connect to a Russian I.O. who had a similar laptop driving down the street. And just burst, send the information straight over that way. It's hard to detect right. unless you're looking for it. Now, the good news is the FBI had been put onto her and was looking at for it. Right. And so was able to intercept all that information. Uh, but that is the new way of spying. Technology is now how this happens. Well, you look at some of the steganography that some of the other... Exactly. Uh, where they're hiding it in family pictures and this And all uploading it yep. to a, to a uh, website. Yeah. Well, you can find this, that, those stories, actually, and all the other ones, too, as far as uh, what Eric did throughout his career, including, of course... Uh, the end of the Robert Hansen investigation, the final arrest of Hansen, and the book that came out again today, if you're listening to this podcast, the day it came out, Great A, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. And if you want to know a little bit about the difference between reality and breach and hear the Palm Pilot story firsthand, check out the interview that Peter Ernest, I believe, did with yes. Eric. Yeah, Peter, back in 2007. I mean, it's been more than a decade. Uh, but it's not hard to find. You just scroll down on the SpyCast list and you can locate <laughs> it and listen to that interview. So, Eric, thanks again for coming back to do a SpyCast. Um, I'm sure we'll see you again in the future. Absolutely, Vince. It is always a pleasure. This has been great. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.